Beloved, you should know my heart. Many people have been praying for this message, and I'm grateful. In fact, Pastor Justin May stopped by my office on Friday to encourage and to pray. I believe the Lord sent him. Dave and Evelyn Pearson came over to the house last night on their way from southern Indiana to have a word of prayer and encouragement. I've been pondering what Howard Hendricks said when he wrote and warned and provided this counsel for anyone who would deign to preach, you need to do so as though lives depended upon it. That sober warning has moderated my efforts and my thoughts and my preparation and prayers for today's sermon. Yes, time has been invested, my motives examined and purified, and my dependence on the enablement of the Holy Spirit are here this morning openly acknowledged. Today, in the passage we have the privilege of perusing is one of the most important truths that impacts all of human history. Our focus today will be in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. Now, I hope you've brought your Bible with you this morning. And if you're worshiping with us via the technology that's been consecrated, we welcome you. And I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles as well. Now here in the sanctuary, we have Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Our passage is found on page 906. Why don't you take a minute and turn there now? Let's pray. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. May you be glorified now, and may your people be edified, and would you now do what only you can do? Encourage, enable, equip, convict, call, save. I'll always be quick to give you the honor, to give you the praise, to give you the glory. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, and amen. Before we dive in, I think it's important that we provide some context. As I like to say, any text out of context is pretext. So we're in the Gospel of John, but let me ask you, who is John? And what is it that we really know about him? In this gospel, he identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Interesting that he would do that. Is that humility? Or is he just so aware that he isn't worthy of love? But he calls himself the beloved disciple, never by his name. We know that he was the son of a man named Zebedee. 
interesting name. We also know that he came from a family that operated a fishing business in Galilee. Now, they employed other people other than the sons, but they had a fishing business. His brother's name was James. John and James had earned the nicknames Sons of Thunder. Now, I don't know what you have to do to get that kind of nickname. If someone called you Stinky, we can well imagine how you got that name. But how do you get the name Sons of Thunder? Because they had anger management issues or because they talked loud? But that was their nicknames. We also know that James, and John rather, was competitive and achievement-oriented. Well, you say, well, Larry, how do you know that? Well, recall from Scripture, John and James went to their mother and said, Mom, go talk to Jesus. Ask him if we can be chief of staff when he comes into his kingdom. James and I want to be, you know, on his left and his right. Ambitious achievement-oriented. We know from Scripture in his old age, John was exiled to the penal colony on the Isle of Patmos. And as he writes what the Holy Spirit inspired for him, he tells the reader, I'm going to share with you the things that I heard, the things I saw, the things I held and handled with my own hands. And there's a theme that kind of dominates through all of his writings, and it's this, this theme of love. His letters, his writings have a special warmth, and I think John reflects well the qualities of love and sensitivity that he witnessed from our Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John differs from the first three other Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, as they're called. And that word, synoptic, just simply means to see together. They each, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they view the life of Jesus in a similar way with their own emphasis. For example, Matthew pictures Christ as the king of the Jews. Mark shows Christ as a servant, and he's writing primarily to the Romans. Mark shows Christ as a servant, and he writes to the Romans. But John, he presents Jesus as the Son of God, and he writes to the whole world. John deals with the spiritual meaning behind the events that are recorded. Let me give you an example. In each of the Gospels, everyone records the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, but it's only John who gives the great sermon on the bread of life in chapter 6. That explains the meaning behind the miracle. In his writing, John will use the expression, the sign, instead of the word miracle, because a sign is a miracle that carries a message. A sign is a miracle that carries a message. The context. Jesus is dead. Brutally and sadistically tortured and publicly executed, there simply is no doubt 
that he is dead. You're there in 20, but look at chapter 19, if you would, and look at verse 38. Are you there? Just say amen. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly interesting, you see that? He was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret disciple. I know we don't have any people in this sanctuary like that, that you're saved and nobody knows you're saved. Secret disciple, I'll leave that alone. And he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, there's another secret Christian. bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, I want to encourage you to underline that in your Bible. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. We'll get to that in just a moment. So they took the body and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Let's stop there for a moment. This is important. There are some that would suggest that Jesus never died. This certainly is evidence that refutes that. The way the body is being treated, the number of people who are handling the corpse is yet further proof that Jesus is in fact dead. Now burial at this time in the Middle East usually took place within 24 hours of death. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and he asked for the body. Now this is extraordinary because I've already told you while Jesus was alive, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were secret believers. But isn't it interesting? Once Jesus is dead, they had no concern about letting Pilate know that they were friends of Jesus. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe is a lot. And it is expensive. Myrrh is this gum that exudes from a tree that grows in Arabia. And this mixture of aloe and myrrh, they would apply it to the body and then wrap the body with the linen and then apply another layer of this aloe and myrrh and then more linen and then another layer. The aloe and the myrrh, they act as a drying agent. And so the linen would become stiff. It also, because of the fragrance of the myrrh, it masks the smell of decaying flesh. In this chapter, Mary Magdalene wants to go to the tomb and she wants to apply some additional spices. She's accompanied by other women. You remember that Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary. She deeply loved him. But when she goes to the tomb, she finds that the stone is rolled away and the body is not there. Chapter 20, verse 4. So she runs and she goes and she tells John and Peter, and they take off running. Do you see this? They're both running together. But somehow, John 
outruns Peter. You see that competitive nature? He identifies himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, but here he doesn't have any trouble telling us, you know, Peter and I were running together, but I beat him. I got there first. I'm, I'm just saying, I, I, I got there first. Now, how did he do that? I mean, we don't know. Was he younger than Peter? Or perhaps Peter's vitality, his strength, had been zapped by his sin. Isaiah tells us that they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Is it perhaps because Peter had sinned that he was zapped of some physical vitality? We don't know. But John beats him to the tomb. Now, when John gets there, even though he's there first, he doesn't go in. He looks. He stoops down, but he doesn't go in. Why? Fear? Respect for the body? Oh, or maybe it was fear of ceremonial defilement, of, of touching a torch, but uh, a corpse. But when Peter gets there, Peter doesn't hesitate. He dives right in, and he looks around. Look at verse 6, if you would. What do they see when they really get inside there? What they saw was the burial wrapping lying in the shape of a body, like an empty cocoon. Verse 6, he saw the linen cloth lying there. Hmm. Going in, Peter then saw that the cloths were still orderly. This is a very interesting word. This Greek word for what did he see or what he saw, this Theorei, it means to contemplate, to observe, to scrutinize. He's looking this scene over, and he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. The cloth isn't ripped. The cloth isn't torn. The cloth hasn't been cut. It's like the body somehow just came up out of there. This isn't the work of thieves. He's gone. The linen, he's thinking, wouldn't they have just taken everything if these were thieves or vandals? Or wouldn't they have just ripped this stuff off and taken the body and it would be laying in here in a heap, in a pile? He can't figure it out. He's saying something's not right here. He's scrutinizing it. And then the other disciple, he saw. How interesting. The word here for saw is not the one that was saw for Peter. This word, he understands. He perceives the significance of what he's seeing. He believed by looking at this empty tomb that Jesus had risen from the dead. With this ocular proof, he believed that Jesus was alive while Peter was still in the dark. Again, it looks like John had outrun his friend. Now let's look at our text. I'm in John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were 
for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The disciples are holed up in this room in fear. And you can well imagine why they're afraid. They're trying to figure out, how do we get out of here? They're going to kill us. They're not just going to kill us. They're going to want to rip our bodies to shred like they did Jesus, and they want to nail us to a cross or have us drag that cross through the streets in agony. We've got to leave. Now, just as they are contemplating their fate, Jesus appears in the midst of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I know how I would have reacted to that. The door is locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there in the midst. I think my reaction would have been something like this. Oh! Aren't you dead? Are you a ghost? I mean, I'd be filled with this combination of fear and guilt and amazement. I'd want to know, are, are you upset with us? Are you disappointed? Are you here for revenge? I mean, after all, we did run out on you. Don't hurt me, please. Peace be unto you. Four truths are revealed that evening that apply to them and apply to everyone since who is a child of the living God. The first truth, peace. Peace be unto you. Only Jesus could preach a perfect sermon using only four words. Peace be unto you. He was expressing infinitely more than a wish. He's making a declaration. He's bestowing a benediction. He was imparting a blessing, and he was affirming a great theological truth. When you know Jesus, when you are in his presence, you have peace. Peace in the present, peace in the here and now, and peace positionally. As a child of God, we have divine peace. My sins are forgiven. God himself has cast them as far as the east is from the west. I am not anchored to my past. I have peace. Peace that the slavery to sin is broken. Peace that Jesus, my Savior, my Savior, takes my fears and my cares and gives me peace, and peace that my life is settled for eternity. Though don't take my word for it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we find these words. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 6, and 9 counsel and tell us that we need be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication, let our requests be known to God and the peace of God that passeth all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Oh, beloved, in his presence, it changes everything. And through him, we are reconciled by Jesus himself to God. Because of his shed blood, we have peace. We're reconciled because of his atoning work. Let me ask you something. We live in a time and a place and in a culture and even in our country where people are racked with anxiety and anger. Do you need peace? Have you ever laid down and tossed and turned all night long and you can't seem to get your mind to get out of gear and you just would pray and call out, Lord, Lord, please just give me a gift of rest and peace tonight. When we're in his presence, we have peace. The second truth, power. Jesus, who was dead, now stands before them. The ultimate power of life was demonstrated in him. Oh, I hope you hear me. Jesus wasn't impeded by the locked door. In fact, he wasn't impeded by the stone in front of the tomb. You need to hear me. That stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. He didn't need any help getting out. The stone was rolled away to let Mary and Peter and John in so they could see he's risen from the dead and he's alive. Power, I tell you. The resurrection means that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. Power over death. Power. Where is your sting, death? Power over sin. Power to save us from the penalty of sin. Power to save us from the, the power of sin in our lives and one day praise God. Power to even deliver us from the very presence of sin. I love the hymn, there is power, power, wondrous working power in the blood, the blood of the Lamb. Our third truth, perspective. Peace, power, perspective. All the events that happened were according to God's divine plan. Now, beloved, this can be difficult theology, but there isn't anything that happens in the life of a believer that does not have to go through God's permissive will. This is difficult and hard for us to appropriate, but it's the truth. Certainly the disciples would have wondered, well, what went wrong? We went from where people were cheering his name and following him 
and willing to go wherever he went to him being crucified on the cross. But now they have this perspective. That too was according to God's plan. Jesus is truth. They have that perspective. He wasn't proffering opinions or saying pithy sayings. Everything that he said was true. When he told them, I am the resurrection and the life, they see that. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He is truth. Didn't Jesus tell them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again? He's standing in front of them, showing them that he's true. The resurrection means that we have assurance of our own resurrection. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father. The resurrection means that God has an eternal plan for these bodies. The resurrection means that God, Jesus, has a continuing ministry. He is able to save us to the uttermost. <laughs> and he's making intercession for us even now. The resurrection means that Christianity and our God are unique and completely different from any other world religion. I would say this to any other would-be God, to any other would-be deity, and I'm saying it loud to all of you who call yourselves deities, which one of you is willing to pay the penalty for my sin with your blood? I'm asking you plain, which one of you would allow yourselves to be beaten to the point of death? Which one of you would drag the instrument of your death while in excruciating pain to your own execution? I'm going to ask you one more time, which one of you would be crucified and thrown in a tomb? And which one of you would lay there for three days but rise up? Which one of you can do that? Now, until you can do that, let me respectfully say to you deities and false gods, you need to sit down and shut up. In his presence, we have the proven perspective of who Jesus is, the one, the only, the undeniable, the undisputable, King of kings and Lord of lords. It may have looked from many perspectives like he died on the cross a common criminal. He died a sinless man and out of love, self-sacrifice, to bear the guilt of our sins. The death of Jesus on the cross was the payment. The resurrection is the receipt showing that the payment was perfect in the sight of God. Because Jesus is life now and forever, the power of death, the fear of death, the power of sin, and in darkness, and I lie shattered at his feet. Perspective, 
Because he lives, we too shall live. Four, in his presence, we have purpose. Look again with me at the text. This is verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Hmm. This is the second time he's told them, peace be unto you. You remember why they were locked up in that room? They were afraid. Huh. He says, the Father sent me. The Father sent Jesus into a violent, hostile, unfair, corrupt, and evil world. And he says to us, his children, I'm sending you, but you have peace. You have peace. Our enemies are real. The threats are real. But he's sending us. And where is he sending us? Your school, your place of employment, your neighborhood, your cleaners, to the birthday party, to the backyard barbecue, to the soiree. He is sending us into this world. The enemies are real. Satan is real. The threats are real. And beloved, you need to hear me. They're only going to get worse. Jesus told us, I'm sending you like sheep among the wolves. But here's the truth. Unbelievers are saved not by miracles, but through the faithful witness of his church in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. It's when we share our testimony of how God has loosed our shackles, how he has restored us to a relationship with God, this is what draws people, and this is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Four truths. In his presence, we have peace, we have power, we have perspective, we have purpose. But I need to ask you something this morning. What difference does Jesus' resurrection make in your life? I'm asking you plain. Are you living your life like Jesus is dead? Is that your perspective? Are you living in fear? Feeling alone? Feeling abandoned? Feeling uncertain about the future? Demoralized? The good news is this. You don't have to live without God. 
Jesus came to earth to make atonement for my sins and for your sins and to bring us into a relationship with God. And because he died and rose again, we never have to live another day without him. We can be in his presence. Oh, I don't think you hear me. You, you may not have any money. You may not have any money, but in his presence, you have great riches. You may be single, but in his presence, you're never alone. You may not be recognized by the masses, but in his presence, you're known by the King of Kings and the creator of the universe. I came by this morning to encourage you with this truth. In his presence changes everything. How can you know that Jesus is real, you ask? Well, read his word. It's true. You see the evidence in the lives of others. And if you, beloved, will trust Jesus, you'll experience him for yourself. I know Jesus is real. I spoke to him this morning. You see, he loosed my shackles. And my heart knows well what the hymn writer wrote when he wrote these words. I was sinking deep in sin, far from that peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters he lifted me, now safe am I. You see, it was love that lifted me. No, you don't hear me. It was love that lifted me. When nothing else would help, it was, oh, you don't hear me. Not women, not money, not cars, not fame, not notoriety. It was love that lifted me. I've been praying that I'd be able to express the urgency of the hour. Jesus is the most important decision of your life. In his presence, those who call upon his name are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Beloved, you can't have the Holy Spirit unless you're saved. And you simply cannot be saved without Jesus. Are you living your life like Jesus is still dead? Let's pray. The right time to do the right thing is right here, right now. If you're worshiping with us at home, in your den, your bedroom, Jesus is calling. Father, I've said what you would have me to say. Would you take the little that I have now and you multiply it and use it for your eternal purposes? 
For those that are under the sound of my voice now, who you have called and saved, saints, would you pray now? If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I, I'm not in his presence. I try to do the right thing, but I'm really not sure if I'm saved. And the good news is you can assuage that doubt right now. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Will you call on him to save you? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not asking you to join this church. But what I am asking you to do is say yes to Jesus. Can you take that step of faith this morning? It'll change your life forever. You can have peace with God and experience the very real power of God. He'll give you a perspective on a very confusing world and you'll have purpose. Do now, Father, what only you can do. And we will be quick to give you the praise, to give you the glory, to give you the thanks. Now we pray in the matchless, most powerful name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, our God, and amen.